0: Welcome to Decoding Hate. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. Today we're taking a closer look at just how platforms are using artificial intelligence and machine learning to moderate content online, as well as some of the risks this poses, particularly for marginalized groups. I can't think of anyone better placed to talk about these topics than today's guest, Diego Diaz Oliva. Diego is a PhD candidate in international law at the University of Sao Paulo. He has an LLM in Human Rights, and he previously held the position of Head of Research at the Internet Lab, an independent law and technology research center with ongoing initiatives researching hate speech and AI. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: It's such a pleasure, thank you for the invitation. Um, It's really nice to talk about my work and the research I've been developing over the last few years.
0: So as you say, jumping right in, you've done a lot of research into content moderation and content moderation technologies. So I'm hoping you can give a primer on how internet platforms are using AI to moderate content online.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So basically, there are two types of technologies that are usually employed by platforms. Technology that attempts to recognize exact matches or a slightly modified version of content the platform has already seen. And also technologies that are trained to identify content it has never seen, but that may violate certain content policies. The first type is the one we call hash matching technologies. They are used basically to enforce policies against images and videos. They are called hash matching technologies because images and videos are transformed into hashes, which is a signature number generated automatically after the image is analyzed by a hashing algorithm. Hashes are kept in databases so that algorithms may identify when an exact match or something very close to a match is uploaded to the platform and take action over it. Um, As an example, there's photo DNA, which is a technology developed by Microsoft and Dartmouth College that converts images into a great scale format with uniform size, then divides the image into squares and assigns a numerical value that represents unique shading found within each square. Together, those numeric um, values represent the photo DNA signature, or hash, as we call it, of an image which can then be compared to signatures of other images to find copies of a given image. This type of technology is uh, generally used by platforms to enforce content policies, against copyright violations, non-consensual images, child abuse imagery, and also content perceived as extremists related to terrorist activities. Um, platforms have created shared um, databases for at least, the, the least two, Um, all those types of content I mentioned, um, in a joint effort to have this type of content banned from all platforms. The type of technology that is employed in content moderation, uh, the other type, because I said they're still right, Um, the second one is what we call classifiers, uh, which are basically models trained to target specific content policy violations these tools are fed with a great amount of data that was labeled by humans in order for them to identify patterns over time so for instance let's say we want to develop a classifier that is able to identify pictures of fruits we would have to (laughs) um sorry if the the example is a bit silly but (laughs) it's so um so we're trying to identify fruit um we would have to feed We classify with tons of pictures of fruit from different angles with different fruits um, and also with pictures of things that could be similar to fruits but that are not fruits. And then we will label all this content as fruit and not a fruit and give it to the the classifier. And then the classifier will start identifying patterns and over time it will develop its own understanding what it should consider as a fruit based on what it was, uh, the content it was fed with and start labeling images it has never seen before as fruit or not a fruit whenever it is requested to do so. So in general, the more data we provide classifiers with, the more accurate they will be. But um, classifiers may not only operate in a yes or no basis, they can give out probabilities. So they can say, for instance, okay, this picture is 80% likely to include a fruit. This type of technology may be used to enforce um, policies against images, but also against text-based content. So, um, for example, um, these technologies may have a role in the enforcement of hate speech policies. Um, Yeah, and when I say may have, uh, I say may have because um, even though this is likely the case, There's still no much public information available about how exactly platforms use this kind of technology, about how they combine automated detection or enforcement of content policies with human oversight and so on.
0: What do we know about how social media platforms are using AI to counter hate speech specifically on their platforms?
1: So, um, I would say they are most likely using classifiers that were trained by feeding from a huge amount of data labeled as hate speech by human moderators. So the same logic I explained from um, for the fruit. Um, even though I was talking about images, this is also how it works for text based content. And then the, those models find patterns across data they were fed with and they um, assign scores to um, that specific piece of content. And that could work uh, with just a word or with a phrase or with a paragraph. The classifier would just analyze it and say, okay, um, I think this is 70% 70 likely to be hate speech um, or or other type of content, depending on what the classifier was trained to do. So I I, I can give you an example of a technology that is similar. it actually does not, it was not trained to identify hate speech specifically, it was trained to uh, to identify toxicity, to identify toxic content, but it's uh, similar enough, uh, the, the, the logic is the same. And even though it's a broader um, umbrella, the, the idea of toxicity, it could still be used to polish hate speech, um, incitement to violence, and also bullying. So um, which I'm always going to talk about this technology because this was a technology uh, I tested um, in my research, which is um, Perspective, which is an AI technology developed by Jigsaw, formerly Google Ideas, that measures, as I mentioned, the perceived levels of toxicity of text-based content specifically. Um, And so it's important to talk about the definition of toxicity because it might be something very broad. Perspective defines it as something um, which is rude, a content that is rude, disrespectful, or um, unreasonable that is likely to make you leave a discussion when you get across it. So according to Jigsaw, the model um, was trained on crowdsource data, and annotators, the the people who were labeling the content for the model to be trained, were asked to label internet comments on a scale from very toxic to very healthy. And this uh, this is the database that Jigsaw says perspective models were based on. Um, and then the levels of peric- uh, perceived toxicity range from zero to 100%, and they indicate the likelihood of a specific content be considered toxic. And a model like this that identifies, as I mentioned, toxic content could be used in detecting hate speech, incitement to violence, and maybe bullying. Uh, Since the definition is very broad, maybe the biggest platforms are using, whether this model or a similar one, or maybe they also um, have more specific models um, that are trained to help in enforcement of each content policies. So probably they have a specific one from hate speech. But as I mentioned earlier, we, are, we don't know for sure how exactly they are using AI in general and also specifically to counter hate speech due to a general lack of transparency. Um, we don't know for sure whether these platforms are using these technologies only to detect violations or whether they are also using this to directly force content policies under some circumstances. I would say platforms are most likely using a combination of both both um, detecting and also directly enforcing policies under certain circumstances. Um, but the thing about hate speech is it's very contextual. Um, and considering this these technologies are not able to understand context very well, oh well, I would say they don't. They they, they just can't understand context. Um, it might be risky to user expression to have algorithms enforcing hate speech policies without human oversight.
0: So then what do you see, having obviously worked in this area and researched this for a long time, what do you see as the main risks of AI based content moderation when it comes to hate speech specifically?
1: So um, I think AI could and, and should be used to help in the detection of potential violations of content policies. The problem is when these technologies are used to automatically enforce policies without any sort of um, human oversight. Because um, if we don't have any checks or balances and enough transparency around it, considering we already have several studies showing that they cannot understand context, then we would have an over-enforcement of policies. This is especially true for hate speech, considering it is a very contextual type of content, as you mentioned. So um, ideas about what is um, acceptable or not are different in different societies. And also um, contextual information about groups that are specifically vulnerable um, in different countries and different societies is also something that's always um, very, very contextual. Um, So sometimes members of um, vulnerable groups um, use, for, for instance, derogatory words, that are usually um, used to attack them in attempt to resignify it, to to remove its negative character and try to make it turn into something positive. And this is for instance, something that the classifiers built to detect hate speech would struggle to understand. They will most likely consider the content as hate speech. And in case there's no human in the loop, they will just remove this kind of content. So I think that's to sum up, Relying too much on these technologies could result in a lot of content being removed from the platforms. And so, what is the problem with that? Uh, this is problematic from my view, from an individual perspective, in the sense that users may have their speech interfered with in a very arbitrary and unjustified manner. But this is also problematic from a public interest perspective because content sharing platforms may play an important role in bringing attention to. Um, issues that are relevant. Um, and, and this is how people discuss these things How they, they discuss these things on platforms. So if you remove too much content, you may uh, be adding additional obstacles to for, for public interest discussions happening online.
0: You have looked at this um, in your recent article that you co-authored called Fighting Hate Speech, Silencing Drag Queens. And this builds on your work in this area, which I think you've been um, you've been working in for quite some time that looks specifically at sexual minorities and free speech rights. So can you describe for listeners that research and sort of how it came about and what you what you found? Because I think the findings are well, I think they speak for themselves, but I'd also love your your views on them.
1: Sure. So, uh, so I can give a little bit, a bit of a background before uh, talking about the, the research specifically. Um, So when I started doing some research um, on it, I started reviewing literature um, and also reports from um, media outlets and also um, civil society organizations. I came across several reports claiming that platforms were wrongfully silencing LGBTQ activists and artists, and also disproportionately removing content produced by other minorities as well. A general complaint was that the enforcement of content policies on hate speech, um, more specifically, but also on other um, content policies, uh, which were developed to protect members of the LGBTQ community as well as other minority groups, was actually preventing these users, LGBTQ users, from using and reclaiming words or expressions that are commonly used to attack members of the community, as I already mentioned. after reviewing studies on the performance of these tools, I realized that the, the content moderation tools, I realized they are still far from being able to grasp context. And then they would most likely not understand the the social context of this specific, um, of, of the Egyptian speech in general. And I also uh, uh, read a very interesting article that found out that African American English tweets are twice as likely to be labeled as offensive compared to others. So this is something happening with several other minority groups. Um, and other, another issue that led me to this line of research was the perception that second centric narratives are selling that AI tools are bulletproof solutions to all sorts of all sorts of problems, including content moderation. And this may give the general public and policy makers, more specifically, the false impression that no harm can come from relying too much on these tools. I also noticed that um, while the limitations of these technologies are quite clear to people with a technical background, this is not the case for non-technical audiences who may think that this technology is actually working very well, uh, which is, which is not uh, so it was important to bring these limitations to the attention of the general public, I thought, um, and now talking about the research by uh, research itself. It was a study that I developed while I was head of research of internet lab together with Alessandra Gomez and Denis Antoniali. So basically we decided to test perspective, uh, a tool that I have already talked a little bit about that measures the toxicity level of text based content. Um, and this our study used perspective to measure the levels of toxicity of um, drag queens in the U.S. and compare them with other prominent Twitter users in the U.S. that are um, supportive of white nationalist narratives. Um, and the drag queens Twitter profiles that we selected, they are all from drag queens that participate in RuPaul's Drag Race. We thought that... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I love drag queens. Um, and
0: <laughs> Everybody loves drag queens. Come on, this is right? a great research project. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> we thought that it was a, actually a very interesting, it was something al- also entertaining, but it was also a very interesting methodol- uh, methodological choice to have drag queens selected because since they are using their personas to talk with the public and um, they are talking mostly to the LGBTQ community since this yeah, this is the their work, right? So we thought it was a more um, a good met- methodological choice to only select edit queue relevant speech. Um and then we decided to go also why we choose perspective, We choose perspective because we wanted to tech a techn- uh, to test a technology that was used to analyze text-based content. and also because it is um as I heard, supposed to be one of the most advanced tools of the market. And also because there are several other studies that tested perspective and we thought we, could, um, we would have something to compare our, our research with. But our intention was not um, to evaluate perspective, to say if a perspective is working or not, but just to uh, discuss broader implications regarding the use of these technologies, which are all similar um, and used to the same purposes. So now talking about our key results, we realized that um, well, the results indicated that a significant number of um, drag queen Twitter accounts were considered to have higher perceived levels of toxicity in comparison to white nationalists. And we also run tests to measure the levels of toxicity of words that are commonly found in the tweets from drag queens and also in the speech of the LGBTQ community as a whole. Um, So, for instance, um, all all those words were considered to have um, high perceived levels of toxicity according to perspective. For instance, bitch and fag, um, they were considered over 90% likely to be toxic. Um, cc over 80% likely to be toxic. Gay, um, 76% likely to be toxic. Lesbian, 60% likely to be toxic. And queer, more than 50% likely to be toxic. So um, that means that regardless of the context, it's just a word, we just inserted a word, regardless of the context, words uh, such as gay, lesbian, and queer that should be neutral are already taken as significantly toxic by perspective. Um, So we think that this alone points to important biases. And also the other words like fag, uh, cc, and bitch, there might be commonly perceived as toxic outside of the LGBTQ community Uh, but here they have another use they are using a mostly in a very positive manner to build in group solidarity and also self-defense skills and this is something that perspective was not able to understand so just to give a a little bit of a background about the specific communication codes of the LGBTQ community which was something that we studied for this research as well and that we base uh, several of our um, conclusions uh, in this article. So we revealed um, literature on queer linguistics and, and studies on communication styles of LGBTQ um, people. And we we realized that several of these studies acknowledge the playful use of potentially, what they call potentially impolite speech by members of the community. Um, a study uh, on on links, for instance, that I read, um, talked about, the language that uh, which could potentially be evaluated as something impolite outside of the appropriate context, but which was actually very positively evaluated by the members of the community that were engaging um, in a conversation. Um, And to quote the researcher, um, if this was a way of building a thick skin to face a hostile environment, which I think is very meaningful for members of the LGBTQ community. So among drag queens, this practice of exchanging insults is called reading, and uh, was already documented in a early '90s documentary "Paris Is Burning" as the real form, um, real art of uh, art form of insult. And this is also present in uh, RuPaul's Drag Race um, challenges. So it's something very present for um, the the community, uh, and we thought that this is was definitely not something that an AI tool be able to understand, because it's very contextual.
0: To read the article, go to our website, decodinghatepod.com. It deserves to be read in full, but I'll give a sampling of some of the featured tweets. A tweet from Bob the Drag Queen, which says, A trans lesbian vegan is the final stage of evolution, was assigned a toxicity level of more than 90%. By contrast, a tweet from Steve King, which says, and I'm quoting, Islam will not assimilate. Western culture is superior. Had a toxicity level of 23%. And so the article includes snippets, basically, tweets that you took. And then it's a compare and contrast. And there are some quite funny ones, I think, that have been labeled very, very, very toxic from the drag queen community. But then you contrast it with the white nationalist. And so can you tell us what, how that speech was viewed and why it was viewed as so much less toxic?
1: Yes. um, So what we consider probably happened is um, that red queens use words that are sometimes outside of the community may be perceived as toxic. I was explaining while white nationalists, not necessarily do that. They they have more ideas ideas that could be maybe understood or, or, as toxic, but not necessarily the way they articulate their speech. And and then what happens is that the, the the tool is not able to see through that and is focusing more in expressions and words that may may, may be considered, um, yeah, toxic outside of the of this specific context. So um, we thought that, yeah, the most probably explanation for our findings is that machine learning techniques work for, they they find correlations between um, input features in this specific case of our research words, because we are talking about text-based content and target classification, which is in this case is toxicity, but it could be hate speech, it could be um, any other thing that the classifiers were trained to identify. Um, And when processing database algorithms establish these correlations between uh, that are based on probabilities of a given word of or expression appearing in content labeled as toxic by the annotators, the people who are labeling the content. And considering that words like, as I mentioned like bitch, fag or sissy, and even gay, lesbian and queer, they are more commonly, that is outside of the LGBTQ community, they are more commonly um, perceived as toxic machine learning algorithms infer that using these words make, makes the, the text more likely to be toxic. So in in other words, they, they get attached to any features that are irrelevant for the classification, even if um, those features only indirectly correlate with it. And in this case, specifically of the NGPTQ community, um, it, it is not because these terms are toxic by themselves, but it's because, um, they might be associated with toxic content. Um, so it, I think it's important to emphasize that some of these words are frequently used by people, in general, as swearing words, due to the prevalence of heterosexism and cisgenderism in society, which means that this toxicity attributed to them have its rooted in the same hierarchical system that places the LGBTQ community in a verbal position. And since machine learning algorithms make no distinctions between direct and indirect relations, they end up associating LGBTQ terms with toxicity. And by doing so, they reproduce prevailing ideas about toxicity and about the LGBTQ community. So in the end, these tools are just reproducing problems we have in society.
0: What I loved so much about the article is that it shows how tools that were probably developed to, to get at homophobia and transphobia to sort of offer some protections i suppose are actually now being potentially used in a way that would silence the very communities that they were trying to assist with the sort of the violent and hateful content that is being thrust at them so often right so i think it's a really interesting article because to your point earlier if you don't know that much about tech you think oh this is great we're using ai now to to try and get at some of this really toxic stuff on the internet but actually who's being targeted. And I think that this is such an interesting glimpse into that. And so one of the things that the article says to to quote your article back to you is that if Perspective's AI tool had to decide which tweets should be removed, the drag queens ones could be suppressed while those from white nationalists could be left up. And it then goes on to discuss Tune, which shows the potential risks of toxicity-based scoring. So can you explain what tune is and how that works
1: when we tested perspective we collected the tweets from the drag queens and the exercise was just to see whether in case twitter was actually using that that specific technology or something very close to it to remove content without having any sort of human input then we would have the the result of that content being removed or not Uh, but we as I mentioned, we don't know whether Twitter is using something like that, that specific tool or another tool or, or how Twitter is employing uh, humans in the loop. So it was just uh, an exercise of imagining what would happen if that was the only criteria for having content removed. But the um, the content was actually, the, the, the tweets that um, are in the, the research, They are um, they were is still on the platform at least at the time that we uh, performed the research. So answering your question about Tune, it was also a tool launched by, developed and launched by Jigsaw. The launch was, if I'm not mistaken, in March 2019. It's basically um, uh, an experiment, uh, inspe- um, experimental browser plugin available for Google Chrome, which uses perspective to let users turn a dial up or down to to raise or diminish the volume of online content. And when I say volume, I say volume because this is how they phrase it when explaining how the technology works. But they are not actually talking about volume. They are tech most likely talking about the likelihood of toxicity of the content that is being displayed on the screen. They, well, Tune works across several different social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit. Um, and so, as I mentioned, users can turn the, uh, the knob up to see everything, or turn it down all the way to hide all mode, replacing all toxic comments with small colored dots. The yeah, Turned it Markets itself around the idea that machine learning um, technology can create new ways to empower people as they read discussions online, but they also acknowledge that sometimes it, uh, the tool gets it get wrong. So. I think here the idea was to give users the option to decide whether they want to see uh, more or less toxic content uh however i it doesn't seem to me that they are fully aware what they are missing um considering that this so may not be as accurate as users in general may think so even though it's something that it's up to the user to decide in case the user have has no sufficient information It doesn't seem like a good, yeah, a good tool to me at least, for me at least.
0: (laughs) When put that way, I think the article is so great because it just shows we're a long way from where we need to be if we're going to rely on AI. The disproportionate effect of AI tools on marginalized groups is a significant concern, and one that is increasingly coming to the fore. Researchers in the United States found that leading AI models for processing hate speech were one and a half times more likely to flag tweets as offensive or hateful when they were written by African-Americans, and more than twice as likely to flag tweets written in African-American English. A criticism often leveled against the main social media platforms is that the decision-makers and engineers within the companies don't reflect the diversity of their users, or know the context on the ground in countries outside of North America and Europe. I asked Tiago if that's a concern he shares.
1: I also shared your concern with this question because not only applying content policies, but also developing and updating them require knowledge of uh, of local context. Um, and since global platforms need to take consideration of local context when making such decisions because they are they are global platforms right so they they need to have insight of the local context when deciding things and this is also why platforms need to keep uh, in my view a very good relationship with research institutions and also organizations that advocate for the right of social minorities because it's a way of trying you know to have a better sense of what is going on um, locally so it's on the technology side of it, we can also have unintended biases due to representation deficiencies in, in data sets. So, for instance, if we are training classifiers to understand hate speech, but then have not enough content produced by LGBTQ users in the database used to train these classifiers, these tools will not be able to detect language um, use of the LGBTQ users that, even though it could be understood as hate speech in most contexts is not HP in this specific situation.
0: Internet platforms operate globally, and that means they're having to moderate content across regions, languages, and dialects. I asked Tiago if this is something AI technology, as it exists currently, can do.
1: Yes, they can, but their accuracy may greatly vary from one language to another and there's a simple reason for that which is a similar reason um, to the bias issue classifiers are in general more accurate the more data they have to be trained on and in most platforms english is the most common um, language is the more common than other languages so classifiers working in english will most likely be more accurate and this is something that we realize when we are using translation tools. Um, they are more ac- uh, accurate when we when we use them to translate from or into more widely spoken languages. Um, so classifiers operating in less common languages are less accurate.
0: you've worked in this area a long time. So what what do you see as the sort of things that need to happen to improve this software because or this technology? Because you said, you know, I, you think we do need to use it, but it's a long way from where it needs to be. So what what are you hoping will be done?
1: So I, I think there are two possible approaches to this and maybe we should be thinking about exploring both of them at the same time. Um, talking about the technology itself, um, there's always room from for improvement, um, and reviewing some literature on, on this specifically, um, we realize there are a few strategies worth discussing that are already being discussed by other researchers um, that attempt to add more contextual information to the performance of the of the tool. So the AI tools, uh, because since they are missing context, what we need to do is to give them some sort of, infor- some yeah information that. That would help them to be more accurate. So, for instance, there are some studies talking about text mining, tech, combining text mining techniques and multimodal techniques in, in the analysis that is performed by the, the, the tools. Um, and when I talk about multimodal techniques, um, I'm talking about putting together classifiers that could look into pictures and, and at the same time, and others uh, that can look to um, text based content and combine their, their analysis because what is very common is also images with over, um, text overlay. So it's a way of improving the specific classifiers to deal with this specific piece of content that combines um, both written text and images. Um, also, the same applies for the incorporation of what we call extra textual features, uh, such as hashtags or emojis, punctuation, and also data on the user and on the connection Um, between users. So um, if you add more information about this, you can have a better sense of the community the user belongs to. And this is very helpful um, as a contextual information that could be taken into consideration. Um, But the problem here, this is also challenging because if we start doing so, this would probably increase the accuracy of these tools, but at the same time we would have to deal with data protection issues, depending on how we collect this data, how we process this data, and how we use it to make it to reach decisions. So it's just ideas worth exploring, but there's still so much to discuss. And I I was just wanted to give some um, ideas out there. Um, And regarding the other approach, uh, which is where I think it's a policy approach, there are also ways we can think about mitigating the risks for user expression. So considering that those tools do not understand context, platforms should use them mostly to flag media for the analysis of human moderators in some sort of prioritization system, because it's very important to have the so-called human in the loop. We've been talking about this, and there are several ways of doing that. For instance when platforms exclusively rely on automation to enforce content policy uh, content policies they should um, tell users that they were enforced against ai tools and offer them an opportunity to, to appeal and also to have um to have humans reviewing uh reviewing these appeals another thing they could do they um could also create some sort of an internal audit process in which they randomly select a relevant number of automated decisions and send them for a human review to re- to reverse enforcement errors. Um, I think that by doing so, they would also be able to better understand how accurate these tools are. They could generate some data about this and also including transparency reports, for instance. Um, and Well, this is just a couple of the ideas, but I think there might be other ways of involving humans in the process. Um, also transparency is very relevant because if platforms are using, are widely using automation, um, publishing accessible information about these tools, um, about how they work and how accurate they are would help the general public and also relevant stakeholders understand and have some sort of external oversight over what is going on inside the platforms. And then I think we will be able to discuss whether the risks of having enforcement errors are tolerable, tolerable or not. Um, because if we have no information about this and we know that these technologies do not understand context, we may assume that they there are lots of enforcement errors. But um, if we have some information and we can estimate how much it is, we can say, okay, considering its content moderation at scale, um and enforcement errors are not that much so it's it's okay it's tolerable but since we have no information about this it becomes very difficult to to just leave it at it is right um and also this would be a way of keeping track of new developments and um improvements in the tools, and also push for um for more improvement of uh yeah ai tools and finally there's another thing um that I think could also help mitigating the risk of new technologies is performing a new um, uh, prior analysis of the impact of the um, new technologies over human rights. Uh, it's what we call human rights impact assessment or human rights due diligence, which is basically a structural exercise of anticipating potential harms to human rights and. Um, come up with ways of attempting to mitigate these harms. Uh, This is something that all companies should be doing whenever their activities have impact over human rights, according to the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And this is also the case for um, digital platforms.
0: But internet platforms aren't only using algorithms to identify, block, and remove content. They're also using AI to curate content specific to their users. So one of the parallel processes, I suppose, is content curation by algorithms, right? And, and content filtering what we see. So I'm wondering if you can just give a um, an overview of how that is how that is done and how that works.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I can give some um, information about that. Um, but also just reminding everyone that not so much information is available. Um, public information is available about this. Is what I'm going to talk is, is just about what what platforms have been saying about this. But basically, what we we'll call the content um, curation algorithms, the ones that are sort of what content is going to appear in your news feed or uh, in the streamlining of, of different um, um, content that you're going to to um, interact with. Um, basically, it is informed by a great number of what they call signals which are basically information that the platform considers, considers relevant in order to reach a decision about what should be um, displayed for that specific user and what specific order and there are tons of different signals for instance the whether the user prefers watching long or shorter videos in case, um, if we're talking about youtube for instance or whether um the the user interacts more um frequently with pictures or with videos or with text-based content um where the user is based what is the language the user um set the platform to works to, to work on um and um also previous content that the user has interacted with um, who posted that content who um, shared that video is also relevant um, the the timing um, of the content, whether it's uh, old uh, old content, whether it's a new content. They usually um, give more prominence to new content. So all of these signals are um, put, are in, um, automatically collected by the the algorithm sorting of content, and it uh, then decides. What, that is specific, what is most uh, the the content that the user would most likely want to see? And then it just ranks it and place it there. Um, so this is basically how it works.
0: I think increasingly we're talking more about recommendation algorithms and how that all works, because I think for a long time, there is this sense that if I go onto YouTube and you go onto YouTube, we're going to see the same thing. And of course, that's that's not at all the case. And so I think, you know, I see a lot of risks there as uh, for freedom of expression, but also, you know, for for things that are related to it. Yeah,
1: no, I, I yeah, I, I totally agree. I think there are, um, since we also don't know for sure how the tools work um, and we have this, sense that maybe it is creating echo chambers and that people are only getting in touch with the same sort of content because this is their own preference. And um, also and, and the, the platform stimulates people to stick to their own preferences because this is this is how they are operating right now. This all makes sense. Uh, but my only concern with this is that um there there's still not enough um I don't know research saying for sure that this is actually the reason why everything is getting so polarized these times. Um, I think this might be an important part of it, but maybe not the only uh, issue there. I think there are other social processes that are going on at the same time that are that maybe pushing um, different societies into a more polarized context. Uh, but I do agree, this is something we should be discussing and that we should be this we have more information on we need more research on this uh, because it, it, it yeah it can be a serious problem from uh, yeah freedom of expression perspective access to information perspective as well.
0: In the next episode we're going global to look at how content moderation and AI impact users differently around the world. I hope you'll join us. My thanks to the OSCE representative on Freedom of the Media for funding this series, and to Diego Diaz-Oliva for sharing his insights for today's episode. Dan Rutka wrote and performed the music for this series. Visit our website, decodinghatepod.com, for more on today's topics, to read Diego's articles, or to share your comments and reflections on the episode. For Decoding Hate, I'm Katie Pentney. Thanks for listening.